Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the Sansfield Podcast, where straight roads are great for fast growth, but turns make for great leaders. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I hope you to be SaaS founders like you scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight and nine figures, which is outstanding. Together, we supercharge revenue growth, create premium valuation, and craft a business you're proud of and a life of impact and freedom that you love. Today, we're talking about speed and not just any speed. But sales velocity, it's that vital force propelling your business forward to revenue glory. Picture it like an IndyCar race, where the fastest car across the finish line takes the trophy and the checkered flag. But here in Sasslandia, the finish line is your revenue goal, and the car, your product, and your engine is your sales process. And like a race engine, your sales process needs to have the power, agility, and the speed just to blast through your revenue targets. Let's talk about a guy you may not know, a guy named Bert Monroe. Bert Monroe was a spirited New Zealander who had an unquenchable thirst for speed. His passion, a 1920s Indian Scout motorcycle machine he spent years modifying in his home workshop with a singular goal in mind, to make it the fastest Indian in the world. And against all odds, he did. In the late 1960s, Bert Monroe set a land speed record in the Bonneville Salt Flats in Utah, clocking in over 183 miles an hour. It's a record that still stands today in that class. There was a movie made about it called The World's Fastest Indian. But think about that. A record in 1967, unbroken 54 years later, with all the tech and the advancements and everything else. And he did it on an engine that's now, you know, 100 years old back then. I mean, 47 years old when he started, you know, 47-year-old engine. Now, you might be asking, you know, what does this have to do with sales velocity? If you think about it, Bert's quest mirrors the journey many SaaS founders face. And like Bert, we all start with a car body, which is our product, our solution. You know, it doesn't go anywhere without an engine. And that is the sales engine. Nothing happens till somebody sells something. The quest is to fine-tune this engine and amplify its performance and speed. In other words, we want to increase sales velocity to drive growth. You know, Bert could have done nothing. I mean, he was starting with something 40 years old that had a top speed of 55 miles an hour. And you think about that, and at the time he took the record, 1967, that bike was 47 years old. He was 68 himself. He could have sat back and gone, you know, I just I don't have what it takes. I don't have the tools. All I have is this old, old machine. But no, Bert's dedication to constantly improving his bike, to assessing every nut and bolt, every tire tread, I mean, it mirrors the scrutiny needed to accelerate your sales process. It's about understanding every stage of your sales cycle, understanding and identifying where the friction lies, and tirelessly working on solutions to reduce that friction and speed things up. Make it easy for the buyer. There's a chapter about that in my book. You may feel like the sales process is slow, or you may feel like, you know, your top speed is not where you want it to be yet. But Bert turned his Indian Scout into a record-setting speed machine. 55 mile an hour stop, 183 miles to set the record. 183 miles an hour. 
and you too can transform your sales SaaS engine into a revenue generating powerhouse. I'm constantly inspired by SaaS founders who, like you, constantly demonstrate the same spirit of determination, ingenuity, and relentless pursuit of speed. So if you're ready to hit the throttle and accelerate your sales velocity, today's sponsor, Champion Leadership Group, has the tools just for that. Get free growth tools and map out a plan to accelerate your SaaS business to seven to eight to nine figures. Travel with fellow SaaS entrepreneurs on your growth journey using a proven methodology that is mentor-guided, results-focused, and peer-supported. Celebrate victories and quickly resolve those error codes, set new revenue records, create premium valuation, and drive your business instead of your business driving you. Ignite SaaS sales engine growth at championleadership.com. Last Tuesday, our founder was Nate Grayek. He's founder of Sticky, a popular SaaS platform which helps creatives book more clients. We talked about SaaS founders reimagining their marketing approach to go beyond the surface and unlock more predictable growth by really going deep, understanding their buyers, and then sell effectively without cringy tactics. And I think of it like it's it's more ooh instead of ugh. You know what I'm saying? Our founder on Tuesday last week was Nate Grayek, founder of Sticky, a popular SaaS platform which helps creatives book more clients. We talked about SaaS founders reimagining their marketing approach to go beyond the surface, go deep and unlock more predictable growth and sell effectively without cringy tactics. You know, more, oh, instead of, (laughs) we've all experienced that at some point, I'm sure. Our expert guest last week leading into Father's Day was father of six, Aaron Zakowski, CEO of Zamo Digital. They're a marketing agency who helps B2B SaaS companies grow revenue with LinkedIn, Facebook, and Google ads. He's also the host of the SaaS Marketing Superstars podcast, and he refereed a head-to-head battle of ad platforms and delivered outstanding insights into options. Uh, So good. If you missed either one of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. My guest this week is Z Jeremick, founder and CEO of Mass Engines. Z is a master revenue mechanic. He's all about building revenue engines for growth companies to harness the full power of existing marketing and sales investments. A key way he and Mass Engines makes that happen is integrating marketing and sales systems and processes to drive winning results. Welcome, Z Jeremick. Well, hi, Z. Welcome to SaaS Fuel. Jeff, pleasure to be here. Well, tell me a little bit about Mass Engines and your background and how you got to this point. Absolutely. Um, Mass Engines is a, is a consultancy focusing on helping B2B companies optimize conversions through the funnel. So we primarily work with uh, marketing and sales departments in larger B2B companies to help them convert more leads through the funnel and convert them faster. And that's what we all want, right? Is speed up that sales cycle. So are there specific things that have changed in the buyer journey over the, the last you know, five to 10 years in, in how we get people in and move them through the funnel? Uh, so much has changed, yeah, right? It's anything it's the same, right? So much has changed. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll, I'll start. I mean, I think the, the easiest way to look at it is that the fundamental thing that has changed is that we're dealing with an empowered buyer, which is a massive shift over, you know, what it was 10, 20, 30 years ago, 
when really, you know, again, you look at marketing is responsible for brand and awareness, right? Right. So once, once you're aware of a particular problem or a particular solution that might be a- available, you engaged with sales. That was your only way of really learning about the problem, learning about what that um, solution might look like for you. And this is where we get the myth- mythical salesperson, right? That right. makes it or breaks companies, right? Uh, but what's changed is that that's no longer the case. Uh, a buyer today, once they become aware of a problem or a potential solution, what do they do? You go to Google, right? Right. You go to your, you go to social, you go to Twitter, you or LinkedIn, you go to your community. There's a ton of communities that have emerged over the last three to four years um, for like-minded professionals, uh, peers. Um, and so there's just a wealth of information that a buyer can acquire without ever talking to a sales rep. And as a result, they don't. So, and we're seeing this increasingly that sales reps are hearing uh, the message. I'm, I'm not ready right now. Why don't you send me some info? Right. Right. Classic so, excuse. Yeah, I'm, exactly. Of course. But it's, it's reasonable more so than ever before because I, they actually do have the ability to do, to do, research on their own, and they know that the sales reps are incentivized to sell to them, regardless of whether they need it or not. Right. And so right. They're, they're, they are pushing back. And I think that that is a fundamental change in the uh, dynamic between the buyer and the seller. And ultimately, you have to adapt to how people buy. And this is where that I think the role of marketing has been slowly shifting. And you can see it even in the kind of the explosion of MarTech right in 2010s and then the a creation of entire new disciplines in marketing i mean demand generation didn't exist you know 15 years ago right and it's essentially very much a, a, a growing discipline within marketing um so yeah i mean i think there's so much that's changing um what i think is really interesting though is that through this change it, like through any change, it's the companies that are able to adapt to the change the quickest that are going to reap the benefits and that are going to you know, kill the competition, right? Right. So what is the, the big shift in beliefs that a company has to have or the leadership has to have in order to adopt kind of the new world of sales and marketing? So, I mean, there's a few things, but I would say, um, simply put, it's it's the... It's the, it's the integration of the silos of marketing and sales that needs to happen. And you're starting to see it. You know, analysts started covering this two or three years ago and through, with this idea of you need to get build or, you know, the Forrester declared 2019 the year of the revenue engine. Right. And, right. and what's been happening since, and you've seen Gartner, you know, very quickly jumped on the trend. There's, there's so much material now being written about revenue operations. So the idea behind revenue operations is that this is the team that unifies marketing and sales operations and that they're accountable for revenue enablement in the company and growing revenue out, uh, as systematically. And so this is really, I think, the biggest. And, and uh, what's interesting is that there's a lot more interest today. There's companies are right, uh, looking at this. I mean, you're seeing a lot of series A and B companies are right from the get-go as they're building their marketing and sales teams, they're actually building a revenue operations team first. 
right? So you're kind of building those processes from the ground up to maximize conversions through the funnel. So I think that that's, and, and really when you look at it, what revenue operations is responsible for is alignment of sales and marketing with the explicit goal of delivering better conversions and more revenue to the organization. And that's something that every company needs. And, and you're right. I think the earlier that happens, the better they are because they're much more prepared to handle that growth. Right. And that's, and it's always, it's one of those things. It's always easier to build from scratch than to replace, right? You have less baggage to sort yeah. of, so to speak, right? Uh, which is, I, th- I feel like, you know, we, we primarily work with larger companies. So like hundred million plus in revenue. And, you know, the bigger the company, the, more complex it is, more politics there are. And also there's more focus on protection, right? Protecting what we have. And that becomes the biggest uh, challenge when you're talking about change and when you're talking about adaptation because adaptation is change and people hate change and large organizations as collections of people hate change. Um, and so this is where you start, you're, like anything else, like large organizations are usually a little bit slower to adapt, adapt and adopt some of these uh, newer approaches, which is, I would say specifically in this case, unfortunate uh, and a bit ironic because they're the ones that tend to benefit the most. Because when you think about it, larger companies have larger funnels right? and growing conversions, you're going to get much bigger a return, much bigger ROI when you're you know, bumping up your conversions by 10% on a 10,000 leads rather than 100 leads. So how do we systematically increase those conversions in the funnel and accelerate the sales cycle? I love it. It's like you're reading my mind here. It's just, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's, and that's the natural next, not, 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 Jeff, it's a great, great question. That's the next logical question. You know, and I think that it's actually fairly straightforward. Um, it's, um, so... We can, it's, it's, and again, I'm going to use that old IT saying like people process and, 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 and technology. So, but I, th- I think the most important thing is to look at the process because you already have, I mean, most companies, you know, you have good salespeople, you have good marketers. That's, it's, this is not, that this is not a story of we got to hire more better reps, sales reps. We got to hire better, more creative marketers. It, the, the, the story is much more around we have the systems now and the ability to track a lead through the funnel. We can measure what the uh, speed of that lead is, how long it takes us to, from the time someone becomes aware of our, or, of our industry or our organization to the time they close. And what we can do, and like with anything else, you know, you can't, I love, I love Drucker. I love that old Drucker saying you can't manage what you can't measure. Right. So you got to measure. And the easiest way to do this is what you do is you subdivide the funnel. And this is not a new idea, right? I mean, if you look at how has sales managed uh, forecasting, right? And the organization, how do they forecast? Opportunities, opportunities are very stage. well. Yeah. Opportunities are very well. In every organization that we've ever worked with, the one area of the funnel that is super organized, super under control is the opportunities. And, and so you bring the discipline of opportunity management further up the funnel. And you can absolutely do that. I mean, obviously, it's exactly the same approach with leads uh, on the sales side. 
But you can actually now take the same approach over to the marketing side. And I think it's, it's, it's again, because of the empowered buyer, it's imperative. And so you subdivide the funnel, you have stages of the funnel, you, you identify, you align the, those stages with the stage of the buying journey that the buyer goes through as they discover uh, the relevant pieces of information that are, that are necessary for them to make a decision for each member of the, let's say, the buying team to decide whether what the right solution is. And you follow it through. And once you can actually measure it, now you can manage it. And because now what you can start doing is you start looking, okay, how do I, it doesn't become, uh, how do I increase conversions through my whole funnel? Because that, that's un, not manageable. That it's too difficult to talk about. That's where you go back to magical solutions. We need more software. Right. You know, we need more leads. You know, we need more ads. We need more reps. But instead you start looking at where, where are the biggest, what are, you know, where are we at each stage of the funnel? You can look and start looking at some benchmarks. What are the benchmarks? How are other people doing? What are their conversions looking at these stages of the funnel? Or you can even look at where do we think is the biggest opportunity? And I'll give, I'll give you a, I'll give you a hint. The biggest opportunity for every company, every company is in the, it's in the handoff. It's all, you know, it's, it's kind of in a relay race, right? Everyone's running. It's, it's just a running. Where, how you get an advantage is how effectively can you pass the baton? Between and marketing and sales? It. In this case, it would be between marketing and sales. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and there's a lot of inefficiencies in terms of how those leads are getting passed. And if you actually talk to the reps, uh, sales reps, and you, you talk even to some of the, some of the folks in marketing, the, the, the thing that I hear most frequently is marketing complains that sales doesn't follow up on their leads. Right. Sales complains that the leads are crap, yep. but send me more leads. I need more leads, but the <laughs> leads are sending are crap. And, and it's both are right. And this is, this is, this is the funny thing about it. Both are right. And that it perfectly illustrates that that disconnect that exists between marketing and sales. And that's why I would argue you want a place to look a lot. It's, it's, it's in the lead handoff from marketing to sales that you can get the biggest bang for your buck. So how do you make that process smoother? How do you get sales and marketing more integrated instead of in the silos? So let me start first with what not to do, which is what most folks are doing. First of all, not paying attention to it. Second of all, having endless conversations about how do we align sales and marketing. Philosophically, very interesting. Practically, not very effective. <laughs> right. So usually what we, we, what we look at is, first of all, you got to look at and understand that sales and marketing are fundamentally different types of teams with different with different incentives. So sales gets paid based on what closes and you're usually commission-based. So you, you have to minimize involvement of sales in the process. They don't have time to sit around meetings and brainstorm how do we improve something. So, um, so again, I would say, you know, depending on who you have in the organization, it might be your revenue operations team, it might be your marketing operations team, it might be your demand generation team. So someone essentially should lead this from the perspective of let's look at what sales needs and what is sales saying? Sales is saying leads are crap. So let's put aside the fact that marketing is usually measuring the number of leads that they're generating, which hint, hint, there's part of the problem. Uh, and let's start looking at how do we actually address this core issue of sales feels that the sale, that the leads are just not that, that good or not worth their time. Even the marketing is spending a lot of time generating those leads. So what we need to look at it then is to 
you do engage with sales, you minimize the engagement, but what we usually do and what we recommend folks to do, first of all, you look at your opportunities. It's the easiest thing to do. You look at what actually converts to opportunities. What's the profile of an opportunity? And it, oftentimes what you'll find when you actually do the data analysis, it's, it's not what you think. I'll give you a great example. We work with this tech company. They were about $80, $90 million. And they were convinced. They kept telling us, no, it's just we want senior management, right? We want executives, senior management in the company. That's who we want to sell to. But you look at their opportunity. When we did an analysis of the opportunities, and what we found that fifty percent of the buyers are actually manager, like a basic manager level. Wow, fifty percent. So you see that, and you say, and again, sure, there was like I think there was twenty, thirty percent that was coming from that senior. So it's not to say senior folks are not buying; you shouldn't sell to them. But it's to recognize that managers themselves can play actually an important role in the buying process. Oftentimes, in many occasions, completing the sale on behalf of the, or on the of the buyer. So you start looking at what is the profile of the buyer from the opportunities. That's usually, and again, hint, that's usually who sales wants to talk to, right? Of that's course. what they care about. So you look at that profile and then usually we, we would like, to, you, you take like a, for example, like a leader of the inside sales team because they're the ones that are picking up the leads in most organizations. And again, BDR, SDR, you're talking director, manager. And if you, if, if the organization doesn't have that, take a team lead or take the best one or two reps, right? And you basically show them, okay, here's kind of, we looked at, tell them, first of all, don't book more than 30 minutes with them. They're busy. And then tell them you did the work. You're not here to waste their time. We did the work. We analyzed the opportunities. Here's what the opportunities say. And then you ask them one question. Uh, outside of, does this make sense? You ask them, it's the end of the day. You have three leads that are in the queue. How do you decide which one to call? You only have time to call one today. What do you look for in that lead that helps you decide who to call? Because honestly, that's the best way to cut through like the 20 questions of who do you want to talk to and who do you like and what do they look like, right? No, end of day, three leads, you have time to call one. What do you look for? And they'll tell you. Everyone will tell you because they know what they look for. Absolutely, they do. And you incorporate. So you take the insights from the opportunity analysis and then you take that insight from the sales reps, what they're telling you. And you build a scoring categorization model, whatever you want to call it, on the marketing side, and you run the leads through that sieve. And what ends up happening is you will cut out, you will cut down 50% of the leads that you're saying are junk. That's the junk that sales is talking about. And usually you can eliminate that without impacting your pipeline at all. And what ends up happening is that sales actually has more time now to engage with the good ones. And you, what you will happen is you will usually, we've seen this, you'll grow your opportunities by, by five or 10% just because sales has more time and there's less junk. That's a so great thing. That, that's just the one example of a fairly straightforward example of how to actually do sales and marketing alignment practically to generate results. And so what is the role of sales then? If marketing is, is generating that demand and passing them over, what does the role of sales become now that you really have an empowered buyer? So, I mean, the role of sales has always been to help the buyer cross the line, right? It's just that they had to do a lot more work because they had to educate the buyer. Uh, and again, in the age of the empowered buyer, the buyer is educating themselves, which doesn't mean that sales can't add add to it. 
Um, but oftentimes buyer is fairly well informed. They kind of, they know what they're looking for. They know what they need. Um, and so sales can certainly add to that, but the idea, and especially once you kind of optimize the, the alignment of sales and marketing, you start and get better leads. Now sales has more time to focus on the relationship on understanding the obstacles that the buyer is facing internally, the real challenges and helping them overcome that to get the deal across. And they have more time. Guess what? It's even better. They have more time now to do that because they're not having to sift through all the junk leads. And so what role does content play in, in really educating the buyer? And, and how does that fit into context and providing them you know, the, the why behind the, the content? Content is key. No, I love that great question. Uh, content is key because, again, we have to, we have to remember that the buyer in most situations is doing their own research, right? They understand sales is incentivized to sell them. So when they do the research, how do they do the research? Yeah, they will. They might go to a review site. They might connect with their peers, but they will also almost always before they do any of that, they will search. They will go online. They will go to their communities. They'll look for content. And it's a content game. And when we look at what companies are still doing, companies are still doing st- stuck in doing marketing from like 2010. When you know, we're talking, about, it's all about content. But what content was you know, 15 years ago, it was about product marketing, producing spec sheets right. and data sheets and, and detailed white papers around the product. But the buyer doesn't, again, if the buyer, because yeah, and back then, sales rep was handling buyer objections or buyer not even objections, buyer, like literally just education, but the buyers handle that themselves. They need content and see the, the beautiful thing here is that if you look at, look at how you generate this content, you, you start looking at what problem does the buyer have? Like you should most, most marketers know what their, um, who their, who their buyers are and what their profile looks like. So start, start understanding and start looking at, um, what do they go through? to actually learn what do they need to know and start producing content that addresses those questions. And I'll tell you, the beautiful thing about this is that when you start looking at it this way, it completely changes how you make content. And the opportunity is that usually the biggest difference between competitors in the same space is what they think the problem is that the buyer is facing, right? And so if you're consuming my content, you're going to start seeing the problem the same way I see the problem. The competition won't even stand a chance because you won't see the problem from the point of view of the competition. But to get there, you have to generate content that speaks to the buyer needs, the buyer pain, because that's what they're looking to learn about. That's what they're looking to, they're looking to educate themselves, produce content that educates, that informs, not content that advertises and that Click here and see me and pay attention, right? It's it's varied for that 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 kind of type of. I mean, it's it's, it's not even content, right? It, it doesn't it cannot stand stand out anymore. It's we're living a very busy world, right? Right. You have to actually speak to the challenges of the buyer. They'll spend five seconds to determine two seconds to determine whether it speaks to them and whether it's relevant to them. And if it does, they'll spend the five minutes or the ten minutes engaging with it. If it doesn't, they'll pass on, and maybe the content from your competitors will. So is it really writing content about what we think the buyer thinks their problem is, or is it about shifting their beliefs to maybe what they, they think it is to what it maybe actually is, or maybe an underlying problem? Yeah, it's okay. That, 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 
that's a good one. So I, I, you know, if you look at the, the, the really great marketers have always spent an enormous amount of time trying to understand their buyer. And so I think that it has to go, it, it, it needs to go back to that. Understand what the, uh, what the buyer journey looks like. And again, we do this for, for some clients. We'll actually do a buyer journey mapping exercise and we'll do a similar. We'll, we'll look at the buyer profile. Let's say look a little, look at some opportunities, right? Good way to learn a little bit about, we'll talk to, 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 we'll get a little hint from sales around who they want to talk to and what do they usually say when sales is talking to them. Then we'll start, we'll look at, we might actually get marketing's point of view. We'll look at the industry and then we'll look at, and again, we'll usually, we'll look at kind of like website engagement data. What do people look, how do people navigate the website? That's also very, very, usually very good yes. information there. Then you actually, you have to, you have to talk to the, to the customers. You talk to the prospects. We actually look to connect to the prospect, the, the buyers, the existing customers who went through the buyer journey. Usually the best thing to do is connect with folks who've bought in the last year, right? And talk to three or five of them. And talk to them about what that journey looked like for them. Who was involved in the buyer process, right? And sometimes the sales reps will be able to tell you that. Talk to the, your, the, the account executives that are handling the larger, more complex deals. They'll tell you who's involved and how, what it looked like. And then you start looking and then you talk to, to talk to the, try to talk, connect to a few of them and try to understand what it was like for them when they were discovering where they find information. What information do they need? What pressures do they get internally? Right to justify the investment, to justify the problem, and I think that that oftentimes will will provide more than enough ammo around what type of content is going to be helpful to generate. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to approach it. When we think about you know buyer journeys and funnels, you know it, it seems like it's very linear when we lay it out, but buyer journeys are, are pretty messy. They don't know the script. They don't know what what they're supposed to do. So, you know, is it realistic to, to think that we can get them into a funnel and really map that, you know, or is it, is it more random? No, I love it. I love it. I, you know, I actually think that, and I've seen, I've seen these conversations. I've been a part of some of these conversations around, right. What does the buyer journey look like? Right. Is it a funnel? Is it like a, like there's, is it a circle? Is it, a, is it some kind of an, like a figure eight? Right. right. And I actually think that the, the, all of them are valid and the argument around which one's better is irrelevant. What's important is to, again, I'm going to go back to that. You can't manage what you can't measure. So pick one, pick the one. And again, the best way to understand is that talk to the buyer, understand what that process looked like for them and map. And then you map the buyer journey against that. And then you create content at, against that particular form that the buyers go through as as they uh, navigate the complexities of buying, is that where attribution comes into place? Where we have content out there, but we're we're figuring out you know where it is that what they're consuming to get them to that point. And so the more the more pattern we have, um, you know, we can separate signal from noise. Attribution is so I. I I love the fact that you're thinking about that. Uh, attribution is so critical because, um, again, once the beautiful, and again, there's, you can look at this from so many points of view, but I'll just put it to you this way. Marketing in almost every organization, marketing budget is the largest discretionary budget in any organization. So what happens when times get tough? 
marketing budgets get cut. Of course. Why? Because it's discretionary, right? It's like, well, you know, it kind of goes back <laughs> to the old joke, right? Is that, you know, 50% of my marketing budget is making an impact. I just don't know which way 50%. Right. That's the that's the challenge. And that is essentially what attribution is seeking to understand, help companies understand and address. And again, you look at, you know, you again in the past, this was attribution was next to impossible to truly measure. And again, this is what's different in the in the in the world of digital and the sophistication of systems that exist today. You can actually again, it's not about making it perfect. This is where people are missing the point. It's about having richer data sets that you can examine to get insight around what the value is of some of the investments that we're making. I mean, listen, there's some marketing investments that you're never going to be able to quantify, right? When you invest in the brand, you're investing in the brand. When you invest in the PR, you're investing in the PR. But when you're investing half a million dollars to go to a trade show, and the only reason you're doing that is because all our competitors there and we always go there, well, okay, maybe, maybe that's valid. But you can actually start measuring the ROI with attribution on those trade shows, on those webinars, on a piece of content that you're generating. And especially, again, if we go back to, you know, 10 minutes ago when we are talking about how important content is, content's expensive. And this is what most most marketers understand that. It takes time and money to generate, especially good content. And so if you're going to generate content, if you're going to now spend dollars promoting that content, because you believe the buyer will help the buyer and will help you in the in the deal cycle, then you have to get better at measuring whether your belief is actually reality. Are the buyers interacting with it? And that's where attribution comes in. And there's many ways to do attribution. Honestly, my view is that you can do attribution with literally the marketing automation, the sales automation system that you already have. You don't need fancy attribution software. Look at a crawl, walk, run. It's much more about business process than it is about software. Start with what you've got. Once you have some basic data, basic insights that are starting to drive your decisions, absolutely look at software and look to get more sophisticated so you can now get more granular information as you're making investments. And in the process, you'll find you're going to transform at least a part of your marketing budget from a cost center into a profit center for the company. And that's where you really know which half of your marketing spend is working is through that attribution. Exactly. Exactly. And it works. We've done it. This is not, it's not rocket science. It's fairly straightforward. It's just that people are not used to it, right? It's different. It's very, it's a very different way of thinking about it. And it's a very different way of measuring marketing that, yeah, frankly, again, most marketers are not used to or not comfortable with. And again, most marketers will also feel they just feels inherently wrong because Every marketer understands the old axiom. You have to touch someone seven to 10 times until they, you know, they see you, they pay attention. And so the question becomes, well, you know, how do you attribute that? Again, it's not about attributing every single thing and making it perfect. It's about getting a richer data set that you can actually start making some decisions on. And that's why even for, from our, my point of view, when you start looking at attribution, start with first and last. How did someone first hear about us? And how did, what was the last point of interaction before they, they raised their hand or we qualify them for, for sales engagement? That in and of itself starts to give you a picture of what the value is of some of the investments that are being made into marketing. And that makes a lot of sense. And I like that the, the qual, crawl, walk, run that, uh, you know, the easy solution is, Oh, I need to go buy some software to do this, but it's really, you exactly. know, start with the simple things. You know, first and last, I think that's really good. 
get some basic data. And again, sometimes you'll be surprised at what you find. It's not about let's kill anything that doesn't have all of a sudden attribution. But again, it's just that you start looking at it. Okay, like what role maybe some of these other investments play in the buyer journey? And do they play a role? And now do we need to start looking more carefully that can we can we figure out how we attribute it? And maybe some of it you cannot attribute. But I would argue that you can, let's say 50% should be attributable. And once you can attribute, you're going to get a much better idea. Again, maybe that half a million dollar trade show you do need to be at. But maybe those $300,000 ones or that $1 million one, you don't have to be there. And think about what you could do in your marketing. Think about how much content you can generate with a, a, a million bucks. Right, right. Yeah, sometimes those smaller shows are better. But what, what if you took that bigger budget and put it into a smaller show and then everybody knows you're there instead of just being lost in a crowd? And that's the kind of decision-making you start doing once you start getting more insight around what is the value of some of the investments that we're making. Oh, that's really, really good. So where do you see the role of sales and marketing in the future? What are things going to look like five years from now? So what I found is that my, I think I've always been a little too optimistic about the pace of change, uh, especially of people's ability to adapt to change. Um, however, what I think, do think is interesting, the change does happen and it's, it's just slow and gradual. So I think within five years, uh, and you're already starting to see it today. Um, so what's going to happen is that revenue operations will become kind of the de facto in most organizations. It'll come through, uh, by merging marketing and sales operations, sales enablement, all these variety of teams that have kind of emerged over the last 20 or 30 years to help marketing and sales operate more effectively. These teams will merge. They will start driving the conversations around attribution, around sales and marketing alignment, around increasing conversions to the funnel. And I think that that will lead to, in some ways, fiercer competition um, and I think ultimately much more choice, uh, and much better content. And I think improved buying for all of us. So how do you think AI plays into this in, in, you know, generating content and, you know, is it quality? Is it quantity? Is it some combination? You know, what does that look like? Oh, yeah. 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 It has so much potential. Um, I think that, I, you know, it's interesting. It's now really going, right? AR research has been happening for 10, or 10 to 20 years. Right. And we started seeing some early results over the last three to five years. And I think really ChatGPT kind of really kind of took it to a whole new level by illustrating that it's no longer in the future. It, it is it's here. here. It is right. now, right? Um, so, yeah, I do think that there's going to be, I mean, it's already kind of to a certain extent, you know, Ultimately, good content, you can't fake good content, right? And that's chat, and that's the thing, that's what most people have pointed out about chat GPT. First pass, it's it's very helpful, but if you need insights, if you like it's very good at, at, at basic synthesis of information and looking it up based on what's already been published. Right. What it cannot do is do more complex synthesis, more complex analysis. And I think that again, when you look at what buyer, pro the complex world that the buyers exist in, um, 
that will be ultimately, I think what's interesting is that the, the companies that can publish that type of content will stand out. And now what's going to get interesting is the whole idea of, of copyright, right? In terms of, hey, if I publish really good content and ChatGPT is synthesizing that content into, into other content that others are publishing, right. this is where the game gets very murky. And I mean, honestly, it's, I think that, you know, legislation might come in. There's going to be some really interesting problems that we're going to find ourselves dealing with. But I do think that AI will be, obviously will be transformative. Uh, first of all, it will add to the glut of content that's already useless content that's already there because guess what happened 10 years ago everybody realized you got to generate content right then people started mainly generating and then they figured out hey if i generate a lot of content i can actually especially if i'm smart about it i can use it for seo i can rank better and then it became you know kind of a fool's games because now it's like so much content is junk out there right it's just because it's keyword hacking that's yeah. right it's, it's 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 content for machines not for humans exactly having the machine present the crappy content to you, which is, again, not helpful at all, except, you know, for driving the click. But, right. um, but yeah, I mean, I do think that there will be... I actually think the biggest promise for, for in AI, for, from I would say from a B2B, from kind of an enterprise uh, perspective, is that it's not in content. It's, it's when you talk about optimizing the funnel, when you talk about increasing conversions... That is still a, a, a very painfully manual exercise, right? So once once you can really even and you don't need a very intelligent AI to do this, it just needs good data. And again, once you instrument can start instrumenting the funnel, which most of these systems now enable you to do, uh, and you can plug even some basic AI into it, it will be able to actually start recommending and start pushing specific optimizations in the funnel that might be even beyond what humans could kind of easily do at first pass. And I think that that's really where kind of that whole idea of building a revenue engine will 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 go up a notch. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So, how does sales and marketing, or particularly marketing, how do you cut through the noise with uh, you know so much more competition, so much more content? How do you stand out? And, and, you know, really demonstrate that value to stand above all the, just the, the noise and, and garbage content out there. Yeah, I, it, it's, it's about the buyer and what the buyer is looking for, right? So I'm going to go back to the same idea, produce good content, good analysis that's looking to answer the challenges that your buyer is, the pain that your buyer is experiencing and provides real solution. You know, it's not about, again, this is where... I don't want to knock on product marketing. I think that they, they certainly have a place. They add a lot of value. Yeah. Um, however, I do think that what you need to look at when you're looking at con real content is look at it from the buyer's point of view, cover the space from the myriad of potential solutions that the buyers could take that may not even include your solution. If you do that, the buyer will consume your content. Yes. So the more value you add to the buyer, the easier it's going to be to stand out. And I the think buyer's empowered. Going back to the idea, it's the world. The, the, the buyer's empowered. The genie is not going back into the into the bottle. No, it's it's definitely not. They're definitely empowered, and uh, and marketing making it about them. Uh, I think you're right. I mean, that's really the the future is making marketing about them, not about us and products and how awesome we are, but about the real problem to be solved and uh, and you know what the the options are for them. Yes, and I'll, 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 it's interesting. I'll, I'll share this. 
just to illustrate how real this is. And I mean, if the pandemic didn't illustrate already, right, how real this idea of the empowered buyer is, we work with uh, uh, this larger company that provided systems to car dealerships. So they, they worked with, I don't even know, like 750, 800 car dealerships. And they shared this with us. This was like eight, nine years ago that like in their, in the turn of the century, uh, people used to walk into three car dealerships for buying a car. By like 2015, they were walking to 0.8. Wow. So right. Th- and that was eight years ago, right? And so now what is it like? Point one? No, no, you know what it is. Like, you know, you can literally today, you can buy a car with an app. Yes. And it'll be delivered to your door. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a much better experience. Exactly. And when, especially when you look at what is the biggest pain point, again, we're talking about buying cars now, but what was one of the biggest pain points when you look at surveys, when you look at what the cons- consumers were saying about the experience of buying a car, what's the one thing they hated? They hated dealing with a car salesman. Yes. Because they felt pressure, they felt they were bamboozled, they felt they were upsold and cross cross sold all sorts of things that they didn't really want or need. And so again, the consumers empowered now, they have options other than walking dealerships. So what are they gonna do? They're gonna use those options. Of course. So are you offering those options? So again, if we bring this back into into kind of more of the B2B world, the the same dynamics gonna play out. It's whoever's offering whoever is making the buying experience seamless. And again, in B2B, it's never going to be on, you know, you're not going to buy a million dollar worth of software or factory automation on a, you know, on, on, a, on an app. Right. But you will discover what the relevant challenges are, what some of the solutions are, what's the difference between these different systems. You will discover that online and good content and content that actually helps you solve that problem will ultimately triumph and the companies that deploy, create and deploy that content will stand out. Without a doubt. Yeah, they're not going to buy that the million dollar solution, but they'll probably have a short list of two or three by the time they ever raise their hand and engage. And so you're either in or, or you're out at that point and you, you know, you've, you've missed. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Well, where can people learn more about you and about Mass Engines online? Yeah, I mean, the easiest way uh, the easiest way to check us out, look at massengines.com, M-A-S-S, engines.com. Uh, we have a variety, we have a ton of content. Uh, I would expect around, no less. Right? <laughs> yeah, we got to eat, eat our own dog food. So Valuable content fan- too. Yeah, absolutely. There's fantastic, again, it's, and we've created from the perspective of you should be able to do this on your own. So, we have a we have a thirty page, uh, for example, book on attribution, ebook on attribution. Just download it, and we have basically we take you step by step. Here's what to do to build that crawl, uh, first and last attribution with the existing systems. You don't need any software. You use what you have, and you can get it up and running. We have a fantastic book on lead management, which is about the essence of the essence of building a revenue engine in your organization. We have actually an ebook on mapping the buyer journey. So there's a ton of content. There's video content. It's uh, as well. There's So yeah, I would definitely say check us out, massengines.com. We'll definitely do that and link that in the show notes for sure because there is a lot of amazing content there. Oh, thank you. So Z, I really have enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for having me on, Jeff. I really did as well. Thanks again, Z, for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. All links, highlights, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. 
Please subscribe or follow us while you're there and also check out our new YouTube channel. You can search Champion Leadership or SAS Fuel and you'll find us there. All the episodes, backlog is being uploaded, but shorts and long form content. Everyone who subscribes this week gets a set of Fast and Furious desk coasters featuring iconic movie quotes to inspire you on your SaaS building journey. Power up those revenue engines. Well, join us next Tuesday where our guest is Dan Fernandez, co-founder of multiple SaaS platforms, including So Stocked and Thomason. Dan shares his extensive experience leading offshore teams. He has great tips and lessons learned about planning and executing. So good. And on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series, on Thursday, one week from today, we have Rachel Perinello, principal at the Alexander Group, a leading revenue growth management consultancy. Talk to Rachel about effective sales compensation, such a hot topic, aligning compensation with sales goals and SaaS pricing strategies. So another thing that I get asked about all the time, Rachel is bringing the heat and will take you across the finish line with that. Sales compensation, pricing, so good. So I will see you next time. We have Dan on Tuesday and Rachel next Thursday. Enjoy your weekend. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.